welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 147, Retail Therapy, The Rise of Anglo-Saxon Towns. Okay, to start with, I have a couple corrections. First, I've been saying Cadbury Congressbury, because that's how it's spelled. But apparently, it's Cadbury Kongsbury, because it's in the South, and they hate syllables down there. Second, I've been saying Bamber because that's also how it's spelled. Apparently, though, it's Bambara because it's in the north and they love syllables so much they just had to add another. And while we're at it, Beauchamp is Beecham, Beaulieu Palace is Bewley Palace, and Chalmondeley is Chumley. And hell, I'm starting to think that London is probably pronounced Lun by the locals. It's just getting out of hand. And as far as I can tell, most of England and parts of Wales and Scotland have been locally renaming things purely on the basis of trolling everyone who doesn't live within 10 miles of that location. It's like some kind of crazy shibboleth. And while I'm including random facts, corrections, and idle grumblings, I think I left out one major reason for the Christian conversion. I forgot to mention that Thunor, the god of war, the mighty son of Woden, rode around on a chariot pulled by a pair of friggin' goats. Not exactly awe-inspiring stuff. And even their names are kind of embarrassing. Teeth Bearer and Teeth Grinder. So yeah, they were probably just normal goats doing normal goat stuff. Hardly the stuff of legend. And it's almost like having a chariot pulled by two cats named Carpet Pier. And why do I have a cat? You know, maybe those early converts were just relieved to have a god that didn't require so much willing suspension of disbelief. Because seriously, a goat chariot? Alright, let's get on to history. Specifically, let's talk about towns. And to start with, let's establish a couple terms that I'm going to be using quite a lot. When I talk about towns and cities, what I'm largely talking about are larger communities that have a permanent population of traders and craftsmen, and whose economy is focused mainly upon trade. Conversely, villages are smaller communities that are built around mostly just agriculture. Villages might have more land than a town, but their population density will be much less. And that's because of the nature of the work that they do, and the amount of arable land that they require and their economies tended to be more localized and based upon subsistence when compared with towns and cities. Make sense? Okay, so towns. We've been lacking them for quite a while. At the dawn of the 5th century, Britain did have some towns, but then the people endured a series of calamities, and the chaos on the continent resulted in Roman emperors, and also Roman usurpers, draining the island of its warrior population and defenders. And don't forget that a big part of the process of Romanization was to eliminate the warrior culture of the local Britons, which meant that once the trained Roman soldiers and auxiliaries were gone, there just weren't many people who knew much more about warfare beyond put the pointy end of the stick in the other guy. And, as you already know, rival kingdoms took advantage of this. And after the legions left, Britain was racked with raids and internal strife for quite some time. And as a result, within about two generations following the dawn of the 5th century, towns just stopped working the way they once had. Now naturally, there were still populations, but the specialization, organization, and stratification that was part of the Roman way of life was gone. Life retreated to much more of a localized form, with very few exceptions, 
and trade had fallen away, or at the very least became much more limited than it had once been. And by our period, the 7th century, the small towns that supported the Romano-British economy had vanished. And as for the large public towns in Civitas, they also rapidly died. But as they were showpieces for Roman power and wealth, many of their buildings and monuments were made out of stone. And while some were torn down for materials and repurposed, many of the buildings remained, slowly decaying on the landscape. Many of their local populations fled the island, died, or simply dispersed into the countryside and formed small communities that could survive in the new reality that they were a part of. The thing is that with the fall of the small towns and infrastructure that bound Britannia together, the support network that supported the Civitas way of life vanished. That lifestyle required a tremendous amount of material and labor from the small towns to keep it going. And now that those were gone, the extravagant cities went as well. To maintain a city requires someone to marshal an enormous amount of labor. And only in rare instances do we see evidence in the early post-Roman era of anyone being able to accomplish that. But there were still some territories that tried to hold on in one way or another. Where there was an ability to gather labor on a large scale for a common purpose, we do see evidence of people salvaging buildings and repurposing them for the new localized economy. And as for the public works that were once maintained, well, they were often left to decay or outright torn down if they weren't needed. And situations like that are how you end up with locations like Verulamium, which is modern-day St. Albans. Verulamium continued to operate, sort of, after the withdrawal of Rome. But rather than as a city as it had been in Roman times, now its buildings were repurposed to enable the location to continue to function as a religious center and handle tributes, but not much more. Some other places continued in a way that looked a bit more like an organized community, rather than just a religious site, as was the case of the old Roman town of Canterbury. I mean, by the time of King Aethelbert, we saw him operating out of Canterbury. And you might remember that in the early conversion period, they had worked to restore an old Roman church in the area, almost certainly with the aid of Frankish masons, since stone masonry was a lost art in Britain. And there's evidence in the archaeological record that someone very important, possibly the King of Kent, had established a residence within the walls of Canterbury. And honestly, the Anglo-Saxon presence wasn't new for Canterbury. From digs, we see that the early Anglo-Saxons of Kent, from the mid-5th century, which is pretty close to the time of Hengist and Horsa, well, those early settlers had settled their houses near Roman ruins. For example, there were three pit houses that were placed near the old amphitheater down there. But even in those rare examples, the city life of the Roman days was over. Merely inhabiting the former location of an old public town or civitas doesn't mean that that sort of life had continued. It definitely didn't. There was still some degree of trade, and we do see evidence of goods from Francia and elsewhere being introduced to the island. But city life, as it had been, had vanished. By necessity, life had changed and become much less extravagant and much more localized and simple. Now, it's debatable whether or not this change resulted in life getting worse for the lower classes. After all, the standard of living and the health of the Britons almost universally went down when Rome conquered most of the island. They were sicker, 
they worked harder, and they were disarmed and robbed of their culture. They were also forced into a bureaucratic box where it was incredibly hard to get out of their meager situation. In fact, much of Romanization had to do with creating bonds at all levels of a conquered society that kept a person in their station, from the highest to the lowest. So now that Rome was gone, was that the end of the world for the lower classes? I'm sure that the appearance of raiders was certainly a problem, but don't forget that they were dealing with things like that even under Rome. The barbarian conspiracy lasted for about a year before Britannia could be fully retaken, and that was while Rome was still holding on to the West. And from the archaeological digs, Romanization was disastrous for the health of the lower classes. So maybe Rome pulling back onto the continent and no longer looting the island of all of its able-bodied fighters, meaning that the island was losing about half of its workforce, not to mention its defenders, well, maybe now that Rome couldn't do that anymore, it was a boon for the lower classes who really could use every able-bodied hand in the fields during the harvest. And also, now that those bonds of Romanization were broken, maybe they could better their station. So yeah, maybe this was kind of okay for the lower classes. But it was definitely a problem for the upper classes. Those public towns were rather nice. And the lives that they were living were even nicer. And within a couple generations, all of that was over. And by our point in history, many of the public towns, with their stone buildings and monuments, had been completely abandoned. And over the course of centuries, for the vast majority of the old Roman public towns and sites, nature had come in and retaken the land that was carved out. The once open spaces of the forums of Ibaracum and other public towns were being colonized by the local vegetation. Grasses, bushes, and even trees began to move in. And they would die, decompose, and still more vegetation would grow on top of that, creating a thick layer of soil over much of the lands that were once the hub of the political and aristocratic life of Britannia. And now, on many of these sites, there was just vegetation, animals, and the remnants of a life long lost. And within 200 years, the imposing Roman public towns that were so clean and ordered had become incredibly ruinous sites that belong in a Lord of the Rings film. They were fantastical locations, and that sense of wonder and fantasy was definitely felt by the local Anglo-Saxons as well. While the old Roman buildings and public towns were generally abandoned, it doesn't mean that they vanished from existence. Even in the locations where people weren't building on or near the sites, people were still aware of those places. They were located within the kingdoms which they now live and the people would have seen them on their travels to neighboring villages. Or even if they never traveled, because don't forget, this was a rather insular period of history, they would have heard about them from those who did make the journey. And legends started to surround these strange and wondrous places. And people began to spread rumors that they were built by a race of giants who once lived there and then died off. Naturally, not everyone thought this. Those who had access to learned men were well aware of the Romans but not everyone had such access. But regardless of what a person believed about the origins of these places, the majesty of their structures couldn't be denied. And that's probably why we start to see some kings building their halls in or near these places. And it's also probably why we see records of major events occurring near old Roman ruins. For example, think about how often major events were occurring at Hadrian's Wall. Oswald defeated Cadwallon at the Wall. 
There were multiple baptisms that occurred at the wall. Even some southern kings and nobles were baptized at the wall. These sites still held a degree of power. Perhaps it wasn't Romanitas, as not everyone was aware of the Roman past, but it was definitely some sort of sense of legitimacy. And I should make this clear, that even in the cases where the old Roman towns were inhabited, much of it was still abandoned. For example, a huge portion of Canterbury was completely abandoned and left to ruin, even though the Kingdom of Kent was still clearly operating there. And that's probably why King Ethelbert felt so at ease granting land to Augustine. And when Augustine and his missionaries set about building in their new lands, they were dealing with a thick layer of soil and didn't manage to align their buildings along the old Roman grid, probably because they couldn't quite see it anymore. So when you imagine these Anglo-Saxon populations slowly integrating their communities into the old Roman ruins, keep in mind that huge portions of them would still be left to decay and not incorporated into anything. So even in the case of Verulamium in Canterbury, you'd have Anglo-Saxon buildings near these old ruins that were being reclaimed by nature. And once the attempt at recolonization of Canterbury was in full swing, the way Augustine and his friends went about it reflects that town life and Canterbury itself had largely been dead for quite some time. But something interesting, which I hinted at earlier, was happening. Trade kept going. And that's important. While town life might have disappeared, trade continued, but it was in a different form from the old Roman days. The goods that were produced on the island were no longer mass-produced, with one small town producing a ton of uniform material, but now it was more individualized and locally made, but then traded throughout the island and across the channel. And some of the urns and earlier earthenware material that we found suggest that bands of craftsmen would travel throughout the island, make their wares with the local clay for a little while, and then move on to a new region once the demand for their work had dried up. So I want to make this clear. There was still skilled labor on the island, and there were still communities. They were just smaller and more localized. So what we're talking about here is an era of itinerant merchants and craftsmen who were visiting villages, rather than large-scale trading towns that were drawing material and labor from the surrounding small towns and housing permanent craftsmen and traders. And actually, this sort of localized economy probably explains the repurposing of Verulamium into a religious tributary site. Based upon how much of the old city was left to decay, yet there was the creation of new buildings to handle grain tributes, it makes perfect sense if we consider the localized economies that we're dealing with. People probably went to Verulamium to worship at particular times of the year, and largely abandoned it for the rest of the year. So creating an infrastructure to handle just those tributes, but leaving the rest of the buildings to decay, makes perfect sense. They wouldn't have had the resources or organization to completely maintain a civitas. But due to religious zeal, they probably were able to gather enough collective work to build and maintain what was most important to them at that site. And then they would worship, use those buildings, and then go back to their villages. And grain was quite important, since this was a food-based economy. Don't forget that they had no coinage. So yeah, the construction of buildings to handle grain tributes seems completely reasonable to me. And actually, I bet that site was also a hotbed for trade and craftsmen during the few holy days each year. After all, when else would you see such a concentrated market for your wares? 
And so, for about 200 years after Rome left the island, that's largely how things operated, with towns disbanding and those that remained forming small communities who still were not operating as towns as they once had done. Rather, they were operating as small villages, and the Roman ruins were generally left to decay, and people were occasionally getting new goods from itinerant merchants and craftsmen. But in general, things were just local and small. But by around 600, things started to change. That's when we start to see London, York, Ipswich, and Southampton beginning to transform from villages into towns. We see the appearance of wicks, which are locations built around craftsmen and trade. After 200 years, things are stabilizing enough and there's enough surplus wealth and labor to allow for the creation of a network of small trading communities. Early towns were establishing themselves in the East. But each of them went about it in their own ways. Each was unique, though all of them reflect a change in the culture and the economy in Anglo-Saxon Britain. And to examine this development, let's have a look at one of these new trading towns, Ipswich. Early in its Anglo-Saxon history, we see evidence of a small community of traders and craftsmen along the banks of the River Gipping. There was a Roman town in that area. Well, there was one about 11 miles away, so maybe not in that area, but, you know, in the general region. But rather than building near that, the traders opted to build at the head of an estuary, which was actually probably a great idea, since that would have made boat trade very easy. And in its early days, there were probably scheduled gatherings where farmers, traders, and craftsmen would arrive via boat and wagon to exchange their surpluses. And this wasn't just trade with East Anglia. Right from its earliest days, we see evidence that they were also trading with Kent, and some of them might have even been Kentish themselves. So this was a multi-kingdom affair. And then word of these gatherings must have reached across the channel, because Frankish traders appear to have gotten in on the action. And once these foreign traders started attending, the dates for the gatherings probably became much more rigidly established. And so, during these market days, Ipswich would have been flooded with incredible foreign goods, such as glass containers, wine, and beautiful cloth. And also Anglo-Saxon goods, maybe items produced through their intricate metalwork or maybe slaves captured in one of their many battles against the British or against the rival Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Slave trading like that was occurring in London, so it very likely could have happened in Ipswich as well. And then, by around the time of Raidwald, the settlement became a year-round settlement. Now there was enough surplus material, and there were enough trade links, that it made sense to have a place that provided a permanent location for traders and craftsmen to exchange their goods. And looking at their trash, we see that ironsmiths, antler workers, cobblers, weavers, and many other craftsmen were moving permanently into the area. And of course they would. There's profit to be made there. Now chances are, early on, there were more than a few people who went to the market area who weren't traders at all. But rather, they came to service the traders who arrived. After all, the traders would have arrived with a large number of needs. Those who came by land would need food for their pack animals. They might need material to repair their wagons or boats. They might need food for themselves, or maybe clothing or shoes to replace those that had worn down from the journey. And once things became more permanent, there were definitely wealthy traders who would pay for lodging in the summer months when they came to Ipswich to trade. 
I mean, think about a trader who arrives to get a large supply of wine, probably to provide it to the local nobility or monasteries. That trader would require wagons and animals for transportation, and probably soldiers for his defense, as well as food, lodging, firewood, clothing, and everything else needed to keep everyone going. And life on the road is lonely. Companionship was probably also in demand. Frankly, there are all sorts of needs to be filled. And honestly, my guess is that this trading town probably had a growing community that serviced those needs, much like how those old Roman forts gave rise to villages in their shadow. So yeah, by the time of Raidwald, we see a permanent community developing that wouldn't have just been traders, but rather people from all sorts of areas of work. And the community would have ballooned in the milder months, and then vacated, leaving only the permanent residents during the harsher months. Sort of like the seasonal economies of many coastal tourist towns. And life in those towns was probably a bit miserable. They were developed in a haphazard way. And as such, when we look at the dig sites, we see that most of the craftsmen were living all together, rather than having their own districts. And that meant that Unferth the Cobbler might have had to live and work next to Wolfgar the Tanner, which meant that he had to deal with all the horrible smells and frankly noxious fumes that tanning requires. Unferth was probably getting pretty tired of the amount of pea smell he had to deal with on a daily basis, for example. And not only that, but they weren't entirely prepared for the level of population density that they were dealing with, which meant that the towns were not only filthy, and from looking at the little alleyways and stuff that we've seen, they were definitely filthy, but those towns also would have been dangerous. Small spread out villages, for example, didn't have much of a fire risk, short of individual homes burning down. But fire was a serious concern for trade downs, where the people lived close together and as a consequence, built their hearth fires a bit too close to the walls and overhangs. And when one building went up, they were close enough to others to pose a risk to the entire community. But this level of risk, and honestly, chaos, suggests that the early towns were indeed organic, and weren't laid out and regulated by any sort of major authority, at least not in the early days when they first became permanent. Now, you might be wondering how we know that Ipswich became permanent. Well, when we look at the cemetery that was established just outside the settlement, we see that men, women, and children were all buried there by about 600, meaning that entire families were now there. And interestingly, much like Anglo-Saxon Britain for the era, we see in the graves that society was stratified, with many of the dead having few or no grave goods, and only a few of them being of high enough status to be given goods to take with them to the afterlife, such as weapons, jewelry, or fine glass containers. So not only was this transforming into a town, but it brought with it the same organization that the rest of Anglo-Saxon Britain was developing, namely, a stratified society. But now, after 200 years, the towns have come back in the 7th century. And when you look at it, Ipswich makes perfect sense as an early trading location. And also picking that site rather than the nearby Roman ruins also makes sense. Building a trading town, even if they had reclaimed the old Roman town, would have required a huge amount of collective effort to build the necessary infrastructure. However, Ipswich basically required nothing in those early days. Traders could just pull up with their boats and wagons. And later, when a permanent location was built, it still required very little infrastructure. 
Even water-based traders could just pull their boats up onto the banks. They didn't even need docks. So when it comes down to it, Ipswich was ideally placed for an early trading town. And at the time of Raidwald, that's exactly what it had become. Now naturally, while the economy was focused upon trade, food was still a necessity. So we see that, at least for the first couple of generations after Ipswich became permanent, they were also maintaining farms. And I suppose that makes sense. Until things got into full swing and trade could support the community as a whole, they probably would still need to make sure they didn't starve to death, you know? And here we see one of the fun things about looking at history. Namely, there are rarely hard lines that are drawn on anything. But rather, just about everything is a matter of degrees. So can we say the exact moment when this location became a permanent settlement, or when it fully turned into a town based on trade? Probably not. And it looks like it was a matter of sort of slouching into it based upon what the economy would support, and on the individual choices by the traders, craftsmen, and their families. Chances are, it began with as little as a single family deciding to stay at a trade site and just farm there, rather than going through the effort of bringing all their stuff to the site several times a year. After all, there were multiple points of the year when trade would need to occur. You can't just arrive at the spring and expect to get everything you need, nor get the best prices for what you need. Different things came into market at different times. For example, farmers would cull their herds, usually in autumn. So if you were a tanner, or simply needed leather goods, you wouldn't want to go to market in the spring. Rather, you'd want to be there in the autumn. So to live on site would probably give a person the best opportunity to get the best goods and services. And honestly, it's a pretty good idea. So naturally, others decided to copy it. And then you had the birth of a small permanent settlement of locals that would massively expand in accordance with the market cycle, and then contract over the winter months. And then over time, it slowly grew with more and more people deciding to set up camp and stay there over the winter. And then... In time, the trading community grew, and you had families individually choosing to put more of their efforts into their crafts and less of their efforts into the fields, until finally, Ipswich was just a trading town. It's an interesting site, and one of the reasons why I chose to focus on Ipswich is because rather than being built by royal decree or supported by the aristocracy, we see a sort of organic creation of a town built upon local necessity and supply and demand. And we see evidence that, in the coming decades, there was a growing reliance upon support from nearby agricultural communities. And by the 8th century, the town will essentially be entirely focused upon trade, and much like the Roman towns, it would have required the support of a network of smaller communities and villages to keep it going. And it wouldn't be long before we start to see production become organized, and things such as pots being created on an incredible scale. In fact, once the Ipswich pottery thing caught on by the early 8th century, virtually everyone with a pot in East Anglia had one that was made in Ipswich. And you can find them also in other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms as well, such as Northumbria and Kent. So things in Ipswich really were developing quickly. And much like the large-scale production that occurred in Roman times, we're seeing evidence of its return in these trading towns. And while the vast majority of Ipswich was occupied by locals, when we look at the burials here and at other known trading communities, we also see people buried in foreign outfits and in foreign ways. 
And that suggests that these towns weren't just inhabited by local traders, but there were also foreigners who moved in and established themselves. And a major marker of Londinium during the Roman times was how it was occupied by a cosmopolitan community from all over the known world. And in these early trading communities, we're starting to see that sort of situation coming back. And that's great news for our Anglo-Saxons, because with foreign inhabitants comes foreign ideas, as well as foreign technology and goods. The introduction of Christianity did a lot to spread literacy and knowledge from the continent. But these trading centers would have also helped that along. And it wasn't just the availability of knowledge and access to outside trade that these towns were starting to spur on. These towns were also starting to touch the lives of just about everyone in the East. Even if they never made it to Ipswich, London, or any of the other trade centers, these places still affected the lives of the people in the East. For example, a wide variety of crafts would have been organized to coincide with a market cycle where demand was greatest. So labor was changing to cope with the new demand and market times. Further, while the ruling classes might not have initially realized they had lightning in a bottle with these towns, it didn't take long before they noticed them and wanted to get in on the action. So you had members of powerful dynasties working to exert their influence over the towns, and in some cases, going to war over their control. And on the one hand, that's good, because these powerful figures were able to launch the construction of public works that individual families weren't able to. For example, the creation and maintenance of major roads. But on the other hand, this is yet another way that these dynasties were consolidating further power and wealth into their own hands. In this case, through control and taxation of these towns. And given the nature of the Anglo-Saxon economy, namely one built upon food rent, and the fact that these towns were basically created in order to trade surpluses, that makes me think that when we're looking at these towns and who's inhabiting them, we're mostly looking at churls and thanes doing at least a substantial portion of the trading at this point. I mean, you certainly could have skilled craftsmen coming in and practicing their trades. But if someone was wealthy enough to arrive with goods to trade, and equipment and production to get them to market, and then turn around and distribute those goods, I seriously doubt that we're looking at farmers doing the majority of the trade at these sites. Just by the raw structure of the system that they were living under, the farmers would have been just kind of scrabbling to make sure that they and their families didn't starve. It was the upper classes that would have had the surplus. So even though it might not have been the ruling dynasties that were dominating these sites at first, we're probably still seeing the haves pulling away from the have-nots, even at the sub-ruling class levels. So ultimately, what are we seeing here? Well, society is beginning to grow more complex more engaged with the outside world, and there's enough surplus wealth and labor that the kingdoms can support both a substantial aristocracy and also a growing network of trade locations. The days of subsistence farming in small local communities are drawing to a close. And just like the early egalitarian days came to an end with the concentration of wealth at the dynastic level, now we're seeing a concentration of goods and trade at the trading towns, and the rise of a new urban merchant class. And the farmers and their slaves, whether they knew it or not, were supporting the entire structure. 
All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And actually, there's all kinds of stuff. So the best place to go to find out about it is thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And on the right side, you're going to see all kinds of fun little links. There's also links at the top. There's also, you know, episodes to listen to. So just head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and you can see all our communities and see where you want to get involved. All right, thanks for listening.